But so we're going through the book of Revelation. What Revelation is, to, to reframe us to what this book is, Revelation is a reframing. It is reframing us. It's, re- it's reorienting us to uh, reality, to what we believe is the truest, most beautiful, most glorious story happening all around us. And what that word revelation means is an unveiling, a pulling back the curtain, a revealing of something. And for us, it is the revelation of Jesus. The curtain is being pulled back by Jesus. He's the one doing the revealing, doing the unveiling, and it's of him. That is who we're seeing. The unveiling of Jesus that we might see him and his gracious kingdom in our world right now. That there's something truer than what we experience, that the chaos we feel deeply, the wrongness with the world, the hurt and the pain and the sin and destruction, that Jesus is bringing a kingdom and bringing that to an end soon. Things are not what they seem. There's more than meets the eye. Jesus' true and good kingdom is breaking through, heaven bursting through into earth. So look, see, behold. That is the imperative call of this book, to look. Things are not how they seem. There's more than meets the eye. So behold, behold this grand vision, this revelation of Jesus. Jesus has won. That's what this book is about. Uh, Sarah, if you'd go ahead and come on up and maybe walk slowly. Um, As she's coming up, I want you to think about um, your vision for your life. Like when you think about your life, your vision, your hopes, your dreams, what are you thinking of? What are you striving towards? What are you laboring for? What will have happened when you will have made it? What is that? I'll tell you what I thought of immediately when I asked myself this week was that my kids would grow up in love, that our family would be close-knit, that they would go to schools that they love, that maybe we'd save a little bit more money and move into a little bit bigger of a house in a more ideal part of town. That was the first thing I thought of when I asked myself that question. And none of those things are bad inherently. But that vision for life is no different than if I asked a thousand people on the streets of Nashville, Christian, secular, atheist, Hindu, Jew, Muslim, agnostic. That's what everyone would say. Because that's the vision of our world, right? Up and to the right, ascend, 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 more, more, more. That's our culture's vision. That's the American dream, baby. But that's not the dream of the one we just confessed to whom we belong both body and soul to. No, his dream was not one of more, 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 but of crucifixion, of cruciformity, of dying to self. And his vision for his people, for his followers, does not consist of an up and to the right mentality. It too is one of descending, of serving, of dying for the sake of others. So what does that mean? Do I, do I not really believe this? Is this all just, uh, am I fooling myself with this Christianity? Is my faith just different clothes on the same vision that everyone else has? No. What it means is that I need an unveiling. 
I need a revelation. I need the curtain to be pulled back so that I can see and behold and remember that there is more than all of this. There's more than meets the eye. But I'm drawn into this vision of the world, of our culture, because I live here. This is the water I swim in. But there's so much more than this. And so as I read this chapter, chapter 11, this unveiling, this reframing of reality this week, the spirit and grace and love convicted me, showing me, reminding me, this is what it is to be one of the people of the lamb in this world. So what we are about to read, this this chapter, Revelation chapter 11, this vision is God's vision for his people in the world. So let's see together. Let's behold Jesus' vision for his people. And by the grace of the Spirit, let our visions be reframed and reshaped by his vision. So if you would read the passage for us, Sarah. Okay, we're in Revelation 11, 1 through 19. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to two of my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pour out of their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They would have the power to shut the sky and that no rain may may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they would have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and will conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of these peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze and their dead bodies at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets that have been a torment to those who dwell on earth, who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on the, on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from the heaven saying to them, come up here. And when they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven. And the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants and prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, puddles of thunder, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this unveiling that at first glance is wild and crazy, but it's for us. You've given it to us to move us, to change us, to transform us. So would you do that by your spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot here. You like how I told you this is God's vision for you, and then this is the craziest chapter of potentially the whole book. Um, But really, this is probably the most imagery-filled and rich, symbolically chapter of the whole book, which is saying something for Revelation. And this isn't a code book to figure out the end times. This is a pastoral letter given to real people and real churches living between the first and second coming of Jesus, just as we are. And all of this imagery is from the Old Testament. All of this imagery is from the Old Testament. John, who is receiving this vision, and the first century Jewish Christians who are first receiving this book, they are not confused about the measuring rod and the 1260 days and the olive trees. This is all part of the Old Testament, right? You don't have to explain to a Harry Potter fanatic why a horcrux is significant. You also don't have to explain to a first century Jew what the meaning of the outer court of the temple or 42 months, why that's significant. So don't don't be overwhelmed by this imagery, okay? Just like Jesus' parables in the gospel that are centered around agriculture and farming, we city dwellers just need a little help understanding farming to understand what he's saying. Here, we just need a little help understanding Old Testament imagery and history. So don't be overwhelmed. And like a parable, this chapter essentially is a dramatic apocalyptic parable telling us what the church is like. That we are pilgrims witnessing to the world. It's not a manual for witness. It's not a step-by-step for apologetics. It's not a code book to decipher the end times. Right? This is a dramatic portrait, dramatic picture of us, God's people, living in the world until Jesus returns. And like a great drama, like a great dramatic film or movie, it's meant to rekindle our imaginations, to wake up emotion and vision, to heighten my imagination. Right? I don't go watch a great drama of a romance movie to learn tips and tricks on how to be romantic. At least I don't, and I hope that you don't, right? I'm meant to leave inspired by the dramatic. I'm meant to leave moved, that I might go reignite my love with my wife or or treasure my marriage more deeply. That's what the dramatic is doing in me. And this is doing that in us for our witness to the world, for our purpose in being in the world. And so as we walk through this text, as we walk through the imagery, 
Don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't forget the main point of this. This is Jesus's vision for his people in the world until he returns. For us, it's Jesus's vision for us, for our lives. A dramatic one, yes, but we need the dramatic to heighten and wake up our imagination and our vision and our love, right? Jesus could have just said, hey, John, remind them that they're supposed to witness about me. He doesn't do that. He gives us this dramatic, terrifying, awesome, crazy, mysterious portrait because it's good for us, because we need to behold and see and be moved because he is reframing our vision, reframing our reality. He's pulling back the ultimate, pulling back the curtain on the ultimate and revealing the will of God for us. Haven't you always wanted to know what the will of God is for you? Jesus is telling you right here. This is what he's telling us. So here we go. So it begins, remember, we're still in this interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. If this is your first week and you have no idea what that is, um, I don't have time to explain it, but the seventh trumpet is just the final sound where Jesus returns and he brings mercy and justice and renews the whole world. So we're in this waiting, we're in this interlude as we await the seventh trumpet. There's sermons back on this, on the trumpets, if you want to go listen. But that's where we are, right? We're waiting for God's final restoration of making things right by his justice and his grace. And so it begins with John being given a measuring rod and he's meant to go measure to mark out God's people, right? We are the temple of God, me, you over and over again. That's how the new Testament speaks of the temple. It is us. So John is going and he is marking out God's people, but not the outer courts, right? The outer courts in the physical temple is where anyone could go. Jew, Gentile, believer, unbeliever, anyone. And so God is using this imagery of John is marking out God's people from the rest of the world. That's what he's saying. I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So at the beginning of this, we're seeing that there's this clash of kingdoms there's God's people and the world, and there are these two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' kingdom, and they are clashing. And in this clash, we are going to be trampled by the world. That's what we're starting off with. That for whatever this 42 months is that we're about to get to, which is also 1,260 days, which is also three and a half years, that's all the same number, that there's going to be this clash, and we are going to be trampled by the world. And in this clash, what we're going to find out is that we don't clash by trampling back, but by dying and being resurrected. So we'll get to that, but that's how this is starting. This marking out of God's people from the world. And, he, and Jesus is saying that this is going to happen for 42 months. This 42 is meant to draw the scripture reader back to a number of places in the Old Testament and the New. It's all over. First, primarily, it's meant to draw us to numbers where Moses recounts the journey of God's people from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And Moses says, this happened in 42 stages. That's numbers 33. So when Moses is describing the journey, the pilgrimage from slavery to promised land, he describes it in 42 stages. And what this is meant to do for us is God is showing us, he's painting us as also a pilgrim people in the wilderness, on the way from slavery to a promised land, to a home we don't yet know, but we're on the way. And this world is like a wilderness to us. It is not our home, but there is a home that's coming that we long for. 
Secondly, it's drawing from the prophet Elijah, who in his preaching and his prophetic voice, he stopped the rain for 42 months while he preached. So that's the second place it's taking us to. And it's showing us that we too have a prophetic voice. That just like Elijah, just like Moses and those people, we were on a pilgrimage on the way in the wilderness to a land. And just like Elijah, we have a prophetic voice. We have a calling to proclaim the goodness of God and repentance and grace. And then lastly, it points to the genealogy of Jesus from the gospel of Matthew. In the beginning of the New Testament, the very first part, the genealogy of Jesus is given and it's 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus. And so it's saying that we too are awaiting the coming of our Lord. So all of this is describing us as the, in this way. We are pilgrim witnesses awaiting the coming of our Lord. We are awaiting his advent. We are pilgrims like Moses and the people of God leaving slavery on our way to a promised land. We are witnesses like Elijah calling out, using our prophetic voice to share and show and show forth the goodness and grace of God, calling for repentance. And we're waiters. We are awaiting the advent. We are awaiting the coming of Christ, the second coming. So that's, that's how we begin. And when we get into verses four to six, it says this, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Again, we're continuing the Moses and Elijah imagery, right? The powers of plagues, the turning of water into blood, fire called down from heaven. That was Elijah shutting up the heavens from the rains. That was Elijah. So we're getting this Moses and Elijah imagery all throughout, but don't miss this. This is not Moses and Elijah. That is not who these two witnesses are. We are not spectators like, oh, I guess Moses and Elijah are going to come back one day. I hope I'm around to see it. This is us. God is putting on the clothes of Moses and Elijah on us, on his people. We are his witnesses. And it's saying just like Moses and Elijah had a prophetic voice and call, we do too. That we're going to do the same things. That this has always been the call of God's people from Moses to Elijah to us to witness. So when it says witnesses here, just put us, put Midtown West. That's what this is talking about. We are the lampstands. We are the light of the world. We are the olive trees. That's from Zechariah 4. It just, you can go read it, but it just means that we are servants of God in the world. From Moses to Elijah to us, we have always been pilgrim witnesses waiting for the coming of our Lord. And what our witnessing is, is an unveiling. Our witness is a revealing. It is a pulling back the curtain on the steadfast love and mercy of God to us through Jesus. It's a revelation. Listen to this kind of witness from Psalm 40. I have not hidden your deliverance in my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and faithfulness, but I proclaim your saving acts. Not concealing. Our witness is an unveiling. That we don't conceal God's grace to us. We don't hide it in our hearts, but we witness to it. We unveil it to the world. 
that there is a God who abounds in love and faithfulness and that his grace, his gracious good news of the gospel is for you just as it is for me. And that's why Jesus describes us here as being clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is the clothes of a prophet and it means it represents repentance and repentance in a double sense. It's describing what our witnessing is about, but that's what we're doing. We're saying repent. If that word scares you, it just means to turn around. That's what the word means, turn around. It's saying that they are running away from a God who loves them and wants to be gracious to them, wants to pour out his love on them. And so it's saying, turn around, come back to this gracious God. That's what repent means. That's what this witnessing is. It's describing what our witnessing is about, but it's also describing who we are, that we're actually wearing these clothes of repentance. It's describing us that our witnessing, we aren't standing on a mountaintop of our own righteousness saying, come, come be righteous like me, you sinners. That's not what our witnessing is. No, we are repentant people. We are laying at the foot of the cross saying, come see where I found grace. We are beggars showing other beggars where we found bread. Come. And we're not one-time beggars. We're not one-time repenters. This doesn't describe just our entrance into this faith. This is characteristic of the Christian life. The Christian life is one of repentance. And so we proclaim, we witness to the grace and goodness of God, not when we pretend like we have it all together or that we aren't as bad as those other people, the sinners. But when we show the world that we are the chief sinners and the chief repenters, that we are the foremost needers of grace. Now, today, not, yeah, I used to need grace. Now, like I believe right now, I need more grace than anyone else in this room because I know the depths of my own heart more than I know any of yours. That is what we're showing. We witness in weakness, clothed in sackcloth, showing forth our repentance and not just vertical repentance, but horizontal repentance. That I'm also the chief repenter when I've wronged someone, that I'm not too proud to admit it, that I know that I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace. And so I can plainly say, I've wronged you and I'm so sorry and I repent. That I show forth my repentance that way too. That I'm not too proud. We are a repenting people proclaiming repentance. And then it goes even further in verse seven and eight. When they've finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. That our witness is not merely our prophetic voice that's calling to repentance, but we're also following the paradox of Jesus in living this cruciform life, even unto death. That's what the middle of this chapter is getting at. Right, if you remember back in chapter five, in the throne room, the great throne room scene, the paradox of Jesus is that he wins not by coming as the conquering lion, but as the little lamb slain, bloodied, murdered for his enemies. That's the paradox of Jesus. And what this is saying is that that paradox continues through us, the people of the lamb, that we follow in this cruciform way. 
That's why it says they are killed just as their Lord was. They are following their Lord. They are the living embodiment and witness of his death for his enemies. You see, the word for witness is martis. It's where we get our word martyr for. That's what martyr means. And in the first century, when this was written, practically every Christian would have had someone in their immediate circle who was martyred for their faith. Family member, close friend, everyone. And so it's no surprise that this is how this ends, that this is how this goes, that they are martyred. Because they're living the way of Jesus, the cruciform life. What this doesn't mean is that every follower of the lamb will be martyred. Remember, this is a dramatic parable describing and drama the nature of the church, the nature of God's people as we witness in the world. So it doesn't mean that everyone's going to be martyred, but it does mean this. Every follower of the lamb will live the cruciform life by necessity because that's what it is to follow the lamb. So what it is to step into this paradox that it's not up and to the right. It's not ascension. It's not more, 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 but it's descension. It's serving. It's dying to self because we are pilgrims on a way witnessing in the word, in the world, in word and deed of the paradox of the lamb. And they, they, these witnesses, in other words, we, we are crucified because of our love for the world, just as our Jesus was, right? Because the only reason I witness, if I know this is what's on the other end of this is cruciformity, the only reason I could possibly witness is out of love because I love If I don't love my neighbor, I don't care whether he lives or dies or is freed from slavery and sin and destruction. I don't bother. But it's love and not this love mustered up within us, this love given by God's spirit to us that reflects God's love for the world. That's the love that compels me to witness. To not conceal God's grace in my heart for me alone, but to want others to experience that grace too to tell of it. And in telling of it, what Jesus is telling us here is that we will face the cruciform life. Maybe not to death, but to rejection, to hatred, to the bitterness of seeing unrepentance and refusal of grace in those we love, that we will face this cruciformity. And maybe for some of us, even unto death. That's what Jesus is saying. Here we are. We are pilgrims witnessing to the world through the cruciform life, through the way of the cross until Jesus returns. This is Jesus's vision for us. So is it our vision for us? Is this the vision for your life? When you think about your purpose in the world, your calling, do you think about being a witness to God and the world. A pilgrim witness living a cruciform life. Or are you like me? And that my natural direction, my natural bent is the vision like I described earlier, up and to the right, ascending more and more and more. Much like the world. And notably absent from your vision is any sort of witness at all. That's why I needed to be reframed by this text. That's why we need this. And this witnessing absolutely includes being good parents and being 
excellent in your vocation and creating and imaging God in all of these ways, using your gifts to recreate and bring renewal, all of that, yes, a thousand times yes. But I even hesitate to say that because I don't think the ditch most of us are falling in is to go stand on a corner and just all day gospel tract pamphlet here without realizing that there's this holistic form of witnessing. I don't think that's the ditch we're falling in. Maybe I've totally misread the room and that is where you are. No, I don't think so, right? That's not the ditch we're falling in. The ditch we're falling in is the ditch that I fall in, which is that I kind of use this holistic, well, I can create and I can image God in my work and all this so that I never actually have to use my voice to prophetically call and share the good news of the grace of the gospel with people. That's the ditch we fall in. And this vision is giving us this dramatic, dramatic, dramatic image of saying you were made to do this that I was made to actually tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's given us, he's put us in places with people who don't know him in our workplaces in our coffee shops in our gyms in our schools. And he's saying, don't conceal my steadfast love and mercy toward you. Tell of it. Not in a weird way. You don't have to be a weirdo. You don't have to be like sitting down at a restaurant, like you ready to order? And you're like, yes, but first, have you heard of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Like, you don't have to do that. I don't even have to tell you how to witness because you do it in every single conversation and every single interaction, every single day of your life. With a movie you saw that you love, with a podcast, with a sports event. Who's a, who's a UT Vol fan in here? Raise your hands, raise your hands. I need to see them. Okay. No, 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 keep them up, keep them up. Who watched the game last night? Okay, keep them up. Who in the 10 waking hours since the game has talked to someone about it? Okay, the hands are still up because you know what to do, that you do this naturally. If you're on the podcast, that was an amazing analogy. You missed out. Okay. Like you cannot help but witness You were made to do it, and it just comes out. In every part of your life, it comes out. And so if the grace of God in Jesus really is the most insane, beautiful, wonderful, mysterious, ultimate thing in the earth, then we've got to witness to it. So why don't we? I think the reason most of us shy away from it, shy away from this, the will of God for us, is because we're scared of the response. We're scared of offending, of making uncomfortable. And what Jesus is showing us here in these verses is that it will offend. It will be a torment even. Again, dramatic picture. That's a dramatic term. But like, do you not know that what we believe is crazy? Like we believe God came to earth in a 12-year-old virgin Jewish girl in the first century and came out and walked around and was poor and died. Like, it's crazy. Or the the catechism that we confessed earlier, I belong body and soul to God, that I am not my own. There's absolutely no way to proclaim that to this world, to this culture, without offending. To say to a culture that says, I am my own, my body is my own, my soul is my own, I do what I want, and no one encroaches on that right, to proclaim you are not your own but belong body and soul to God is an absolute offense. And there's no way to say it that it won't be. 
And that's what Jesus is showing us here, right? He says, they made Mary, in this dramatic picture, they made Mary and danced and exchanged presents because they, the witnesses, us, had been a torment to them who dwell on the earth. That's what it's getting at. Again, it's a dramatic picture, but that's what it's getting at. And so honestly, that realization should free us. That I don't have to be so concerned of, well, is this going to make uncomfortable or is this going to offend? Jesus is saying, it will. Like to those who refuse my grace, it will offend. I mean, you know, like the whole main thing of this thing we believe is that they killed our Lord because of this. Like that's why he died. So, but then we go on thinking, well, but maybe I can say it in such a way that it's, it's not going to offend some. Like, that's not the case. Jesus is saying, it will offend. If you are following the way of the cross, if you're proclaiming my grace and good news to those who refuse this grace, it's going to offend. But the offense and torment is not the only response. So let's pick up in verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a 10th of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. What this is getting at this final kind of scene of this section is that through our witnessing, through our proclaiming of repentance and then living the cruciform life of dying and resurrecting of bearing the offense and torment of this, this calling that people will be saved. And remember, this is a dramatic picture. Obviously in real life, we don't see like bodies flying out of the ground and going to heaven, resurrecting, right? So what is it talking about here? It's talking about this way of Jesus that we, the church by age by age continues to live this paradox and live this cruciform life of death and resurrection. And so that they might see our resurrection hope, even when we bear the expense of much offense and torment, but we're not dashed. We're not destroyed. Or think about the, the laughter at a Christian funeral. You know what kind of witness that is that we can belly laugh in the face of death because we know that we will be resurrected. That is powerful witness. And it's saying they will see that they will see all of this from our prophetic voice to our cruciform life, to our resurrection, that they will see and they will give glory to God. It is plainly talking about salvation, that they will repent. They will turn around and run to their gracious Lord. And this, this last kind of imagery of the 7,000 and a 10th of the city is again going back to Elijah. During Elijah's prophetic ministry, at the end of his time, there was only 7,000 who did not bow to a false god. The rest of the city all went away. And so what God is doing here is he's doing a great imagery of reversal. He's saying, my mercy is going to triumph. There's going to be 7,000 who refuse and the rest will see my glory and come into my grace. It's this great imagery that God's mercy will triumph, that there'll be some who will experience the justice, but God's mercy will triumph, that his mercy is far greater than we could ever imagine. And it happens through us. And so then we get to the end of this chapter. The seventh trumpet is finally blown. And verse 15 is like a thesis statement of the whole book of Revelation. 
that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Heaven has fully broken through. This is the end. That Jesus' kingdom is here in full, in restoration and redemption and renewal. That God has righted every wrong through his justice and mercy, but ultimately his mercy has triumphed. And that we, the recipients of that mercy, inherit this great kingdom. That we inherit heaven and earth. And the temple is opened because, if you remember, the way this started was John marking off the temple, right? He's measuring out God's people. But now God has brought justice and ended, right? It says he destroyed the destroyers of the earth. He's brought justice, but to the many, he's welcomed into his temple. And the temple is now open. There's no need to mark off God's people because they fill the whole earth. And the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence, is seen, that he is there. That's this imagery we're getting. The kingdom of the world has fully become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. And with loud voices, as it says, there were loud voices in heaven singing. With loud voices, all the people of the Lamb from all time and all places and all peoples sing. The temple is open. God's kingdom has come in full and all creatures in heaven and earth sing. So we're about to sing a few more songs. The first song is going to be a pilgrim song because we are still pilgrims on the way. And the second song is going to be a heavenly song because the more ultimate truth is that Jesus has won. And so we can join the heavenly chorus singing now. We're still pilgrims. We're still in this clash of kingdoms in a world of hate So we sing together as we journey on this way to our home, to our promised land, and we can actually draw and sing and join that heavenly chorus because Jesus has already won, praising him for conquering and restoring. But let's not keep our singing in this room alone. We have a world to sing to, to proclaim, to tell of the glorious grace of God through Jesus Christ of a God whose mercy is triumphing, whose grace is for every man, woman, and child who will hear it. And that somehow in his mysterious will, he's drawn us and called us that through us it will be told, that we would witness to it as pilgrims, living a cruciform life as we await his second coming. So will you sing that with me this morning and as we go from here in all the places the Lord has called us? Let's pray while the... The band comes back up. Lord, it seems so strange that such a basic vision and call for us can be so hard to hear. It's because we are frail and weak and we live in a world that is not our own. Would you please help us sing boldly in love of your glorious grace. We ask all these things in your Son, our Lord and Savior's name. Amen.